the thing that helped me adapt is having natural adapters by my side. Hey everyone, I'm Matt, and today on How Now, Yvonne and I talk tech with Steven Vanderheiden of OfferZen. Since his first job at a small tech startup, Steven gained experience across Africa, primarily in building marketplace businesses. Currently, as the VP of Growth at OfferZen, his main focus is continuously impacting the global software community. We talk about his experience working in startups, his thoughts on the rising role and responsibility of software engineering in society, and finally, we delve into how we can organize ourselves to build a better future. We learned a lot from Stephen and we're excited to share it with you. Hope you like it. Here's Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to How Now and thank you for agreeing to speak to us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That's great. I'm wondering if you could walk us through your early days. How did you get into the tech sector and what were some of the early companies you were involved with? Yeah, so I wish I had a very intentional story, but I don't. I studied accounting and law, two professional degrees, um, and much to my mother's dismay, followed neither of them. After studying that, I realized I did a little bit of work in professions, and I realized that the only way you can progress in a professional career, at least in most professional careers, is through the elapsing of time. And I didn't fancy that concept. Being an arrogant young person, thinking that I knew everything, thought that was a bit silly. So I packed my bags and went traveling the world with my, at that point, girlfriend, now wife and mother of my two children. We did a year trying to find somewhere better to live than Cape Town, South Africa. Failed dismally and returned. A year later in 21 countries. At that point, I was kind of getting pressure from the parents to do something, get a job at a law firm. And I met a guy at a braai, which is a South African barbecue. And he explained something to me, which was pretty cool. I thought at that point, and I've always been a geek, always loved technology, always played with it, always tried to kind of hack it, never with much success. But he, he was starting something which is addressing a problem in Africa around addresses. So in Africa, there are no street addresses. There are some, but a lot of them are determined by milestones and it's not very accurate. So there are no like kind of pinpointed positions. And even if there are the technology and stuff is not really available for people to use GPS coordinates and you can't exactly phone someone and say, hmm. I'm minus, I'm at minus 33.457, please come here now. So the, the startup I joined was really that. There's what three words is the version of what it looks like now. I don't know if you know that but essentially they've given a name to every place on the planet and you can use it as an accessible tag for the location. And I think that was just the journey into going, look, you can try and address a global problem with, I think there were four of us, five of us, and we raised money from TomTom in the Netherlands and we got flown to Amsterdam as like a top 50 startups in the world or something like that. And I could just sniff um, impact <laughs> and we could potentially change, you know, the way the addressing of the world works with technology let's say it got funded and adopted and all that kind of thing. Mm. And I think from that moment, I was just totally addicted to the possibilities that software kind of opens up for the way our society works. I think that's the, that's the entrance into it. I think wow. the rest is less interesting, but a couple of marketplace businesses working in classifieds throughout Africa, spent a lot of investors money on unnecessary things like patents and trademarks and didn't, didn't make much of it. Spent a lot. Because of the law background. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, probably, or maybe actually, I think despite the law background, um, we just burned all the money and the, the startups didn't make it, but learned a lot along the journey. And I think I've kind of come full circle and I'm, I'm back at a place where I truly believe that again, with software, we can change the world and, and like create big impact. So that's, a very short version of the journey to where I am now. 
Well, I've expanded my brain just listening to you. So I bet it was a brain expanding thing, just discovering what, yeah, what software can do. Can you fill us um, in a little bit more on what OfferZen does as a company, the one you're now yeah. with? I, I tend to tell you why we do other than what we do. So if I miss that, please remind me. But at, at our very core, we have some kind of fundamental beliefs. The first of which is that talent is universally distributed, but opportunity is not. So that is kind of coupled with the thinking that software development as a pursuit has one of the highest impact pursuits on the planet and for our species. So the way I think about it is if you can redistribute opportunity and match talent and opportunity in the software space, you can increase the impact that we can have. So a good example, kind of counts example is it's a meritocratic business or a meritocratic industry. You can be 19 and the world's best software developer. And that's not unfathomable. Um, so that's a good thing for me. The other thing is super accessible. So some developer in Kenya can just grab a phone and learn to code online with zero money, which is also super exciting. So our business exists to match people with opportunities. And I think it's the exciting bit of that is as a software developer, if I'm looking for a job, there are certain companies that I know I should work for Facebook, Google, whatever the story is, the other companies I can discover by searching job boards and that kind of thing. But you don't really know what your options are. So we exist to help a small agri-tech startup that's putting drones in the sky and trying to help a more sustainable farm find a great developer who would rather do that than work at Amazon hmm. or conversely kind of companies that are that don't really have a good like exciting value proposition that are just a business that doesn't generally excite everyone can find their their person can find their connection on the platform the way we work is we're a reverse marketplace so normally in most industries, you get job listings and people search the jobs. In a reverse marketplace like ours, because of this constrained supply, so devs are in short supply. When I say devs, I mean software developers. We, you create a profile and companies browse you. And that's also a nice way of getting opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have thought about. So these people will reach out to you because they know you're looking. They also are kind of well-trained and we have a matching engine. So they're not going to reach out with you, to you without like relevant opportunities. So you have the opportunity to say, look, I don't want to work for an enterprise. I want to work for a startup. So that kind of matching people with their dream jobs and helping people that are trying to build impactful software find the people that can help them on that mission. That's what we do. So you're primarily uh, from the talent perspective, your talent, your talent pool that people can come and have a look and see if they have anything that yeah. they might want to titillate your members with. Yeah, so, sounds so, so much the, the right way round, right? <laughs> For the work yeah. to be in demand. But what that also what that also means is, and we were started by two software developer brothers who are absolutely crazy, but they have the bravado to just start it like this. They said, look, in the long run, they're visionaries so they can see the future. And then in the long run, people matter, right? Companies will come and go, they'll die, like they'll, they'll move. Companies are just organizations. So if we can just invest in the people that will be impactful over the long term, that will pay off. And that will move around and people get many jobs over their careers and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we've been very community focused from the start. So we print... I think we've printed 30,000 t-shirts, probably even more. We have like a kind of foundation of a writing service. We run events, we do all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we do that consistently over a five-year period. And we really invest all that money. We never really had a sales team and stuff like that. Because the nice thing about software development is if you got the right talent, people will come. So I think that's that's really been the, the focus. So we very much invest in people first. So our talent advisors, who are basically like your career guidance person, even if you've got a better job off-platform, we say, look, we're not going to make any money, but this is the right job for you. Go for it. Uh, and that 
pays back 10 times. You know, the person comes back later, they tell their friends, listen, these guys are they're not in it for the money. They're really investing in us. Let's let's work with them. So it's been our strategy. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of uh, bravery, um, which is very useful if you're self-funded, which we've been for a long time. So you can't get away with this kind of wishy-washy, it's invest in people strategy if you've got these big funders breathing down your neck. So we've seen that as a kind of unfair advantage for the last couple of years. Perfect. So are your devs all over the world or are they also primarily in South Africa and, and Holland? Or Yeah, so they're in South Africa and Holland. Yeah. Um, so we're, it's kind of counterintuitive actually because a lot of the people in the software development space and software development becomes more and more global. Everyone just goes remote and you know it's easy we just connect people across the world. And with our founding mission state, of you know distributing opportunity we do think though and have seen that the most efficient our marketplace works is when we focus on a saturated area and the other big important part of that is we can create communities within cities it's very difficult to create communities globally and mm-hmm. um, so our community strategy kind of works with that uh, and we still fundamentally believe in cities as a human concept we don't think they're going to go away even with covid no they become more important i think as we go along and speaking also, of covid um we've all been going through this very strange time time of this global pandemic. And I was wondering if you think back to when all of this first hit, how did it affect you? What was your original reaction? <laughs> so we kind of, we saw what was happening in China and we saw the kind of, because we're, we're geeks, we did some basic mathematics and we realized we were all in trouble. So just from the exponential growth rate, super early, the travel, the kind of new pockets of infection, we tracked it from very early on. We realized we were in trouble. We can't, and also thing we realized there's not much we can do about it, unfortunately. So we did just brace ourselves a little bit from a strategic perspective, just kind of making sure we'd battened down the hatches funding wise and just making sure that we had enough to take our team through the storm kind of thing. And then when it really hit was the same time that we had arranged to purchase a business in the Netherlands and try and launch a tech talk, tech talent marketplace in a new market in the world's biggest hiring freeze. And that was my job. So I arrived no big the challenge there, sure. Yeah, I arrived in the Netherlands on a repatriation flight. As I said earlier, I have a Dutch surname. My father was Dutch. So I took one of these kind of crazy flights with the army at the airport. The lights were all off and there were sniffer dogs and it was buses with police escort and one of those kind of mid deep COVID flights with my family arrived here and kind of luckily it was the reverse of the situation now. So it's busy. It was very bad in South Africa and quite light here, although all companies had stopped hiring. So for us, the effect was uncertainty reduces the amount of long-term commitments being made. And hiring is one of those long-term commitments that companies make and developers. So we saw a massive dip, probably down to about 30, 40% of our normal operating capacity, oh, wow. which was pretty scary. Luckily, our Founders are paranoid as well, which is a great trait to have as a company founder and have foresight so they could see it coming. So we weathered it pretty well. And the exciting thing about us is I, th- I think what kind of works out in the end is picking the right category to start with and um, with the business. Tech, tech just recovered really fast. The payment space, the data space, all of that kind of stuff bounced back. And some of it even just grew massively as people just started ordering from home, started investing and that kind of thing. So we're back now, but it's, it, it was deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
It's a pretty scary beginning there, it sounds like. So, I mean, that was a, an adaptation you had to do as a company, but uh, but I bet it was pretty difficult to adapt personally as well if you just arrived with your young family in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> all the <laughs> everything you've just described with the flight. Can you help identify anything that helped you adapt, that helped you kind of just take it in your stride and find a way to make it work? I think, I think again, it's probably down to picking a segment and an industry that is a fast learning, highly adaptive industry. So as a software developer, we've just done it, that massive server, well, 4,000 software developers. We think that's big in South Africa, publishing the results soon. But software developers want to learn a new language every couple of months, not years, months. Like that is adaptive, pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty high levels of kind of progress. It's also why young software developers who are learning languages often very fast are getting paid insane amounts because the newest languages are only a year old. So you've got no one with 10 years experience in the language. The thing's only a year old. So by nature of who we are as an industry, we adapt fast and we're mm -hmm. always adopting the kind of most efficient, the most kind of scalable processes. So that was that's very nice for us because we were already remote. So one of the things we saw when, when things were coming, we switched to remote immediately. Basically mm -hmm. said, look, no one comes to the office. Um, everyone go remote and start figuring it out. And we can do that really fast because we are those kinds of, that kind of team. Everything runs in the cloud. We're tech, tech oriented. And we just have this kind of learning mindset of trying to figure new things out all of the time because that's what mm -hmm. we have to do to stay ahead in our business. So I think we're just lucky that the whole team is an adaptive team, which means that you can, you can figure it out together. So you're, as you're trying to figure out new things, working remotely, navigating a hiring freeze, all that kind of stuff. The thing that helped me adapt is having natural adapters by my side mm -hmm. um, in my company. So just being in an industry with people that are used to it and that weren't panicked and just kind of put their heads down and adapted, that made all the difference. So a lot of our competitors and other companies froze and yeah. we said, this is the thing we may not, we must not do. That was the message to the company. No, you everyone's going to freeze act now. Right away. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to freeze now. We're not. And that means we're yeah. going to win. And everyone kind of listened to that. And I think that was, I think the people that was around definitely the biggest asset. For sure. Sounds like it. So did that help personally as well? I mean, did that help your mindset for the, the personal adaptation you had to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think at a personal level, um, I was also involved with the South African government at that time, which was a scary thing to go through because the South African government isn't really kind of tech enabled. They approached us and asked us because we have a, the biggest tech community in South Africa. They asked us to help figure out adaptive solutions to the new crisis that they just had no idea how to navigate. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things was trying to get food parcels to out in people to in South Africa. There's high levels of poverty and there's low levels of technology adoption and low levels of information dissemination. So it's very difficult to go. Okay, now everyone, you know, you can come to this place and get a food parcel or a package or whatever the story is. So one of the the things we worked on was getting vouchers out to the public. I think that was exciting to see that you know technology can enable that what was disappointing was how much how hard it was even though the technology existed to, to actually just get the thing done but i suppose that's the natural government private sector kind of split so i think personally that was a, that was something i learned during the process as well is that even though you've got the 
the tech and you can do all the things, it's still not, it's still not quite there. You can't just have impact because you've got technology. Just right. It has to be um, at the other end as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everyone else has to adapt as well. Yeah? Are they as um, cell phone mad as they were? Like I'm wondering if, if you ended up resorting to SMS messages to get the word out about the about the care packages because yeah, I've yeah. heard that Africa's very cell phone oriented yeah. and not uh, computer-based. Oh yeah, absolutely. The mobile adoption is like more than one phone per person. It's yeah, and it's SMS and USSD, the kind of the low costs things that you don't have to use data. Those kinds of things are pretty big. WhatsApp adoption is pretty prevalent now. I think um, South African government are pretty good to put in through SAS a WhatsApp chatbot where you can claim your grant and stuff like that. So yeah, they are. As part of our efforts to support the live events industry, How Now is proud to feature a musical artist in each episode. This week's track comes to us from Edmonton's Motorbike James. Here's their track, Automatic. of slow weather records. Please support musicians and those who power live events in this disastrous time for the live events industry. Check the show notes from this episode of How Now for ways to get involved with hashtag support Canadian venues, hashtag save live events now, and other schemes which are trying to make it possible to get all the shows back on the road. 
And now back to the How Now interview with Stephen. I'm wondering if outside of what you've experienced, you've noticed any radical adaptations in the wider tech community. Is, is there an example that you could share? Yeah, yeah? I think... I don't know if you've ever read Yuval Noah Hari's books, uh, *Sapiens* and *Amadeus*, but they're quite—they're quite interesting and they're quite daunting. Um, <laughs> but in the same survey that I mentioned, and these are kind of pre-releases, so I might get in trouble with the team for saying, it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. He there's been a massive shift to just data, just data, 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 mm. everything, data and mm-hmm. AI. Uh, and it's happened in the last 12 months. So that's that's what we're seeing amongst our communities, people wanting to work in it, people are working in it, people are learning the languages, people are moving that way. And that's, that is like the, the interesting thing about that industry is that we're essentially programming algorithms to adapt. Mm. <laughs> and our industry is adapting to do more of that. So <laughs> it's quite a weird thought, but our species is adapting to, figure out how to adapt better with the machines, with right. the machines to do that um, so it's a pretty meta comment mm-hmm. um, but it's there's been that move into that space and that's kind of the rich get richer type thing so the, the smarter the better the recommendation engine things create those recommendation bubbles so it's fraught with potential problems so there's the one shift and then i suppose the other one which is kind of similar is fintech massive just payments online payments and transacting obviously as covid stopped all the money stopped moving through the economies yep. as everyone kind of froze so we had to kind of um, rapidly figure out new ways of transferring money to each other so we can keep the economy kind of liquid. So the adoption and the payment space has just been huge. Everyone who was in payments, in it, that's been really good to see. And then I think what what I don't see yet, there, there was like some some kind of people trying to figure out how to solve, you know, tracking and tracing and stuff like that. The answer there was just vaccine. You know, no one actually figured out yeah. how to solve <laughs> any real stuff with technology other than the kind of med- medical thing. Unless you're China. Kind of- <laughs> yeah. Then you're going to yeah. shut everything down. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. it's, you, as, I mean, as I learned in South Africa, you can have all the tech in the world, but unless you've got an iron fist, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's not that useful. I mean, like trying to implement something that invades people's privacy in Europe, you've got no chance. Yeah, um, it's a no-go. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's definitely the case. But one thing that I, I haven't seen us get to adapt to, which I'd very much like to, which I don't know if it's in the scope of the question, you can take um, the liberty. <laughs> thank you. Take it wherever. Is, um, to just kind of sustainable living. It just mm-hmm. doesn't seem yeah. like there's that much investment in that. And that is by far our biggest problem. It's like, you know, we're solving these other weird things, like how to keep the economy going for the next five years. But no one seems to be sufficiently worried enough about keeping the planet going for the next 50. Exactly. Yeah. What, I, what I've kind of seen throughout this is our ability to act quickly and to, if we need to bring resources or money, we can bring it fast and hard and solve issues like how quickly has this vaccine come together how how quickly have we solved some of these major problems like why can't we uh, why can't we approach the climate in the same way that we're we're doing this like so yeah we're gonna have to (laughs) yeah we're going to have to as i understand you you spent a lot of time thinking about the rise in responsibility of software engineering as it relates to society um what does that look like for you you have the Facebooks of the world and all these kind of these people mm-hmm. that can have an insane amount of impact. So the, the 12 WhatsApp engineers, when there are millions of users using it, those engineers have a respons- responsibility because they have power. So that you can do a whole bunch of stuff with that. If you've got a game with billions of users, create the most addictive game on the planet, you Absolutely. then can you can turn people, you can chuck advertising on it and not give a damn about what advertising it is, or you can put a donations tab on it that goes to cleaning up the oceans and, you know, take a percentage for management fee. There's, mm-hmm. there's, you can't do that 
if you start an Apple selling business, you just don't scale. You don't get the opportunity to corral people or to take the resources that come up by these like rapid rises in tech and point them in the right direction. So I think tech will adapt faster than everything else, which means in the current state of affairs that it will be more successful than everything else, which we're starting to see if you just look at mm-hmm. standard and poor as well. So, kind of so what are some of those market, yeah. conclusions that you've come to? Like, how do you think that you'll take some of those ideas and actually implement them and build a better future? I mean, personally, that's something that I grapple with at the moment. What that manifest, how that manifests, is just trying to help people that want to make impact find places where they can, and that's through my day job. Right. So, a friend of mine is an agricultural business. Started a company. I'm trying to make some kind of agricultural logistics more efficient, and they, the company's growing fast. And we've helped them hire a whole bunch of developers, and they're continuing to grow really fast and make a difference. And for me, that's that's enough. That's my space. I'm good at it. Yeah. I can do it. Have the opportunity to do it. So that's what I'm trying to do: is just help people that want to make an impact find a place where they can. It's Amazing. Mm-hmm. So you've uh, you've been working on a few initiatives over over the past year, including Remote Work Report. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what some of the findings have been? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the, so. So what we did is we again. So we have this community that I mentioned earlier, and we survey them, and they like to respond. We often give T-shirts. I think that may be a reason. <laughs> um, one of the things. So we we did this survey, and then I did the um, I led the analysis uh, team. I think the the thing that I looked at, or that that kind of struck me. The most was you ask a question like, okay, how does remote work affect developer focus and productivity? 70% say positively. Some people say neutral and slam dunk, cool. Remote work, you know, it affects developers positively. But there's 10% hanging around saying that it's really terrible. And this is across every single question we ask, right? So how does it affect productivity? How does it affect your motivation? Do you prefer it? And I think as we went into this new space, a lot of it is like, is remote better or worse? And I don't think it's either. Mm -hmm. It's just another option. So the negative, when I read into those, when you read, when you dig into that, that's actually quite interesting. So if you look at the productivity one, the people that say it's way better, top reason, less distractions. The people that say it's way worse, main reason, more distractions. So it's very situational. So I think the the interesting thing that that came out for me is that software developers want more, more autonomy and they want to be able to choose and to be able to be treated like adults. One of the developers in the survey actually responded with, um, he wants to make remote work prove to his manager that it's a viable option so that we can continue doing it. So that's why he was more motivated, right? He wanted to finish his work and get it done so that his manager would be like, whoa, remote's way better. Let's just stay remote so the guy can stay home. Do you think, Um, do you, sorry, just to jump in quickly, do you think on that same note that hours aren't going to be seen in the same way as as they once were the eight hour day for instance as long as you get your work done may not matter can can depending on the job obviously but i'm not sure about that one i think maybe this if i answer it in this way i think the what i saw is that in some instances some things work in other instances other things work and those instances are generally determined by the person's circumstance so i have two children at home it does not help me to work from home it makes right. it worse definitely right there are some That's extra true. things but from a productivity perspective from a kind of, yeah, from a stress perspective, you know, I always got to balance that balance is make it like a concerted trade-off. I need to continuously make strains energy. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I need to navigate, but there's someone else in my company who's the inverse. So what I think is interesting about this global experiment that we all kind of got forced into is seeing a kind of rise in workplace personalization. So everybody gets kind of what they want and how they want it. So we've moved to remote with hubs to kind of try and bridge that gap. It's okay. fraught, fraught with errors and difficult 
difficulties. But I think the, the, the main theme that I got out of that report was that people are, want the choice and that companies basically need to give it to them now because some of them are and you need to compete. For sure. So, That's going to be the driver. And, and I think we'll see a lot of change there. What does the rise of optionality in the workplace change how, change the way that employers and employees interact and work together? Well, I think it, I think it starts at the, the way in which um, the two communicate in the initial dating phase. So as as I, as an employee, need to assess a company, you can give me optionality, but unless I really understand what it is that you do and, and what that looks like, I, I, I won't choose you. So in a highly competitive market, there needs to be explicit communication. So the things that you could used to be able to cheat and just come into my office, I'll show you around and you'll, you'll, you'll smell the, the popcorn and you'll hear yeah, the buzz coming from the pool table track. area. Yeah, it's cool, you know, whip people in. But because of this increased optionality and I think competitiveness, you need to be very, very clear around what your policies are, how you can, what optionality you give people so that they know, look, this is what I'm coming into. Because other people that don't have it quite clear, if you're going to choose between two jobs and you've got someone like MessageBird, which is a Dutch company has just raised an insane amount of money, they very clearly state, look, this is our policy. You can work from home. We understand that life, ha life happens. The hours don't matter. Mm -hmm. We will include you no matter your circumstance. And they've state that. And then you've got somebody else He's like, yeah, yeah, cool. Just come, you know, we're figuring out our policy. So you have to understand who you are as an as a company um, so that people can fit into you. And so that communication has to build. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it's two things. One is decisive decision-making at the exco. Two, very explicit communication. Um, and that can happen probably at the HR level or something. But you need to be steadfast in what you think. It's obviously probably wrong, but make a call. That's what people want. They want to know absolutely um, what they're in for. And then you've got to communicate it, obviously. I think there's also something to be said there for, for knowing what kind of worker you are. Because you're absolutely right. This is focused and highlighted for what kind of worker you are, but also what kind of circumstances are influencing what you need in terms of a workspace. Like, I mean case in point, I'm squashed in the corner of a bedroom right now doing this interview because two other people are using the rooms in my house where I would normally do this kind of thing. Yeah. But also I'm, I'm actually a manager of a co-working space here in Canada. Strange yeah. that I'm not there today, but we've gone back into the red and I've decided due to vulnerabilities yeah. in my own little bubble, I'd rather go into the building yeah. a little less. But I was reading that you also operate a sort of a co-working environment, um, including a program called Make Days. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about what that space is like and how does collaboration inform what you do? do? Do you find that there is something to be said for having that hub, even though people, fewer people are in it at the moment? That's a tough question. I, I miss that going in because we're also trying to be as responsible as possible. And it, it really does give some kind of thing that I don't, I can't describe. I think it's beyond my intelligence levels to understand exactly what it is, but there is some kind of connection that third space is creating. As mm -hmm. a manager of a coworker, you'll understand that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely some kind of connection and the neutral ground that brings people together. So our very first Make Days, Make Days exists kind of a movement against hackathons and the typical type of performance-based gatherings that happen in the tech space. We don't think that that's really something that we want to encourage. There's enough kind of performance-oriented things that happen. What really helps developers learn is when they get to play and enjoy technology. So what we do is we build self-watering plants and robots that can pay each other money and just stupid things that don't actually help um, the world. But 
you do get to learn and you do get to play around with other people and you do get to set yourself at zero. So as a software developer to come and play with hardware, you've never done it before. You've just seen it and you like other people have done it, but it's just something new to play with. Uh, and there's someone else in the room who can help you. And the, the great thing about that is that someone else in the room to help you thing that you create a connection. And software developers are notoriously bad at doing that. And I think it's due to possibly due to the nature of the business. When it does happen, it's so great. And it just, it always leads to good things more people knowing each other and spending time with each other and teaching each other things. That's just, it just compounds. After that, people come end up being mentors for each other. And that always just tells, at the end of the day, we are in such a small market. We just want people to say, look, these guys are cool. Come and hang with them. Because the more people that do that, the more business we have, the more we can scale doing things that are just community driven. So the spaces exist um, for that to just basically help people connect mm. within the, within those communities and to help us connect with the communities. It's very difficult. I can come and sponsor an event and give you t-shirts and stuff, mm. but inviting you over to my place to have a coffee, you can play with the tech there. That's cool. It's just about the focus on play. that human connection thing. Yeah. So it's actually from the, the MIT. Um, they've got an amazing kind of philosophy and I, don't know, uh, they, I think it's you the Media Lab, the MIT. Yeah. Yeah. So they, there's some crazy cool people we spoke to at the beginning from from that stable. Um, they're just so inspiring. Um, and a little bit of that and the Montessori method around free play is a way of learning. So it's, it's based on those kind of fundamentals. And we're scaling cool. that up quite quite drastically now because it's really cool and people love it. Yeah, I think you're right, though. The, the, the competition idea and the performance idea is all, all wrong, especially for people who are, I mean, you know, developers are really very creative people, I think. And all creative people need to be, all people, all adults especially, really need to be reminded how to play because we think of it as a childish thing and it just isn't it's the whole half of our brain i think needs needs more play um Mm. linda barry is very famously written on the subject but now that more people are working from home how have they managed to stay connected are you kind of hosting group zoom chats or what what are you managing to do to stay connected to people yeah so so we we did a whole bunch of these kinds of chats and Zooms and we tried everything, right? as did everyone that's been trying to create connection and host online conferences and breakout rooms and all that kind of stuff. But we literally, we went back to our original, so the make days are a couple of years old. We've had thousands of developers come to make days um, and they're, they're 10, 15 at a time. So thousands takes a lot of weeks. And we went back to our fundamentals and some of the things that connected people quite well was obviously the real world thing, but the kind of shared challenge, um, not necessarily a challenge where they need to work together, but the same challenge. Um, so what we do is we actually send everybody a little Arduino computer. It's probably about four, four or $5, a little tiny sensor, a little plant, like some seeds for a plant and a little mini pump like this. And everyone needs to assemble this thing in front of the Zoom computers together. Um, and that creates some bridge between the physical mm-hmm. and people are picking it up and go, oh, let me see your one. And they have something shared, which creates, it. it's actually a secret ingredient that just kind of worked. <laughs> and we completely stumbled on it un, kind of unintentionally because we were running one and then we had to lock down. So we're like, shit, let's just send it to everyone. And it worked so well that we said, look, this is actually an interesting part of trying to create remote connection by like distributing something physical that people can connect over. So I definitely think that's replicated. I would be really encourage people to try it out. And if it works, let me yeah. know. I can see that working in so many fields. It really, yeah. it really makes sense. <laughs> you do it through art, like for, for teachers could do it for their students. Yeah. You know, they could send them something that where we're going to put component parts together. You know, I love it. Yeah. That, that's a great little gem there. So, we, so, yeah, so we're definitely trying to continue to create those connections through the 
kind of adverse. I suppose we're trying to adapt, as you would say. Mm-hmm. If looking back, if you were to do it all over again, your whole journey from when you were in Cape Town wondering where next, what advice would you give to your younger self? Buy Tesla shares. No, they've gone a bit crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think moving with my family, I would just say, remember that those hours are the most important hours because it's so easy in the, in the whole in the whole move and the whole chaos and all that kind of thing to be stressed about your money or your future or the new job prospects or whatever the story is. And there's Dan Harmon's got this great quote. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's when the, you know, the zooming out, it's a further and further you zoom out, you actually just end up back in the moment and with your family i think just to try and remember that and trying to bring yourself back to that and just go at every second life's just a string of moments so enjoy them when you're with your family because so that's the biggest thing i regret and i think that's the biggest thing everyone every book says when you're old and you're on your deathbed that's yeah. the thing so yeah you're not going to wish you had advice in the office yeah <laughs> yeah of course that's true well anyone who's a parent gets that that that's the yeah. it's the moments because they're yeah. fleeting exactly Nobody's going to remember you for for how many hours you put in at the office. (laughs) No, no one's going to give you any brownie points whatsoever. Exactly. Thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to connect with us today. It's been really great to hear hear your perspective. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you liked what you heard and wanted to find out more about Stephen or anything mentioned in this podcast, subscribe to our Substack. Enjoying this podcast? Consider reviewing us on iTunes or telling a friend. A big thanks to Stephen, Neil Woodley for graphic design, Tom Hammerton, and Tyler Bershey for creating our theme, Motorbike James for the music, and all of you for listening. Next week, we talk to Jason from SubmitHub about his journey from working at Google to starting a successful music tech platform. You can follow us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time keep adapting.